Hi everybody, welcome. We're really glad you could join us today. In today's session, we're going to be talking about the effectiveness of the current drink driving countermeasures and potential new measures to reduce alcohol-involved road trauma in Australian states and territories. My name's Elena Gardner and I'm the Communications Manager at Austroads. I'll be moderating today's session. If you run into any technical problems, please let me know in the questions section of your sidebar. You'll find that in the right-hand side of your screen. And just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, that's most likely an issue with your connection. Closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually fixes that issue. I acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. So a little bit of housekeeping. Our presenters are going to speak for 40 minutes and then we'll have a Q&A session that will run for 15 minutes. We do record all of our webinars and we'll email you once the recording is uploaded on our website. We also distribute our webinars via podcast and you can subscribe to our channel by searching for Austroads in your podcast app. Uh, today's presentation slides can be downloaded from the handout section in your sidebar. So a bit about Austroads, we're the peak organisation of Australasian Transport and Traffic Agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. We use a program management approach to deliver our work and each program is focused on an operational area of the road system. The project we're discussing today was delivered under the safety program, which is managed by David Bobberman and coordinated by Leonie Pattinson. The report this webinar is based on is also available through the handouts section of your sidebar, or it can be downloaded on, from our website. So please do send us any questions you have for the Q&A. Simply type your questions into the box at any stage of the webinar. To help us answer your questions as best we can, please let us know the slide number your question relates to. It can be helpful to have the PDF of the slides available to refer back to the slide number. And just a reminder that they can be downloaded from the handout section of the webinar sidebar. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters today, Project Manager Greer Banya and the authors of the report, Anne Harris and Eric Howard. Greer Banya is an experienced policy and research analyst from the Centre for Road Safety at Transport for New South Wales. She has 17 years experience with a range of state and federal government departments and is passionate about developing and implementing evidence-based policies and programs to reduce road trauma. Greer will be providing an overview of the project. Our second presenter today is Eric Howard, Principal of Whiting Moyne, a strategic road safety advisory consultancy which has been providing services internationally since 2006. In 2018, Eric was recognised with the award of Member of the Order of Australia for his significant service to road transport safety. He has provided road safety advice in more than 35 countries and has led or co-authored a wide number of road safety management capacity reviews and road safety strategies. Eric will talk about the aims of the project and the methodology used, as well as drink driving laws and enforcement. Following Eric, Anne Harris will talk about repeat offenders, interlocks and drink driver programs, as well as community-based measures. 
Anne has worked in road safety for more than 25 years, managing road safety with RACV before establishing her consultancy business 10 years ago. She has had extensive experience working in the areas of young and novice driver safety and developing road safety programs with VicRoads and the TAC. Both Anne and Eric will cover the conclusions and recommendations of the research and respond to questions in the Q&A session. So Greer, welcome. I'll hand over the controls now to you to cover the project overview. Thanks, Elena. Hi everyone, I'm Gree Banya from the Centre for Road Safety at Transport for New South Wales. I'd like to welcome everyone online today and thank you for taking the time to hear about the findings of this important project. It really acknowledges the work of Australian juris jurisdictions in tackling drink driving, but highlights the areas where improvements need to be made to reduce drink driving trauma on our roads. This project started in August of 2018 and the report was published in February 2020. Moving on to the next slide, slide 11. Myself and Hannah Parnell from CRS were the project managers, supported by our sponsors, Claire Murdoch and Ruth Graham, as New South Wales was the sponsor for this project. The report authors who you will hear from today, Eric Howard and Anne Harris, as well as Alison McIntyre. I'd like to give a really big thank you to the Osroads Working Group formed for this project who received comments and feedback from the Road Safety and Registration and Licensing Task Forces before gaining endorsement from the Osroads Board for publication. As you can see on slide 12, the Working Group consisted of representatives from all over Australian road agencies and the key contacts are listed here. I'd also like to thank the many other people who contributed and are not listed here, who work in those agencies and also the partner organisations in the states and territories, like the police, justice, education and health departments, for their assistance in gathering, analysing and providing data to us, which helped to form the strong evidence base that you will see in the framework. And just a reminder, New Zealand remained on the working group. However, this report is in the Australian context only. Over to you, Eric. Thanks very much, uh, Greer, and uh, thank you to Elena. Uh, we're delighted to be here today. There is a lot of material to cover, and we will try and balance uh, necessary detail, essential detail, against uh, accessibility for all of you. But the report covers these matters in, in more detail than we're able to discuss today, and I would refer people to the report. And of course, we've got our Q&A session coming up. I'm going to kick off with our aims, methodology and background. We, uh, we essentially, our aim was to develop a best practice policy and regulatory framework. And uh, we've, we've attempted to do that and that the report is a result of those, those efforts. In this process, these were the key steps. We looked at a full literature review we looked at all of, we talked with all the jurisdictions in extensive interviews, and we're very thankful, might I add, to all the jurisdictions for their help, their, their assistance, their support, their willingness to come back and uh, recheck data, find new data, and in various uh, and in various forums. We pre prepared a discussion paper, which was circulated and was the basis for our way forward, and then we had a workshop in Melbourne with all the jurisdictions in. Um, in early 20, uh, 2019. 
we put a draft framework recommendation report together and again that went through an extensive review process and we came up with our final report so it's it's very much the jurisdictions report and we, we have facilitated all of those ideas that have been put, put forward the drink drive uh, fatalities and serious injuries uh, you can see the figures there and you know there are some states over um, 25% which is a concern but suffice to say this is a very big problem and its incidence is uneven across Australia and uh, serious injuries some qualification there these are three-year figures uh, some qualification about the serious injury data because there are some concerns in some states about uh, their uh, completeness and of course these figures don't include pedestrian fatality so we, we've got a real problem here an uneven problem across the country and uh, this report is about trying to close those gaps drink drivers are mostly under 40 many more males BACs in the mid or high range the people who've been speeding they're not wearing their seatbelt they're tired they're driving unauthorized or unlicensed and they basically live locally where they crash and of course so many of the crashes occur at weekends and at evenings if we look at drink driving in rural and remote areas this is particularly uh, challenging we believe you can see there that um, some 50 percent or more of uh, drink driving fatalities and serious injuries are outside metropolitan areas and it varies significantly across states and territories but again these are major opportunities for improvement and we need to we were we were all we all arrived at the position of understanding that much more has to be done for this particular problem we're grateful to those jurisdictions who really had some data and helped us on that journey alcohol use in australia well it's uh there's been a small decline since 20 uh between 2013 and 2016 you can see those figures uh but the proportion of people who really drink uh, quite heavily on a single occasion once a month remains about one in four so alcohol as we know is a big part of australian life and uh, if you look at the percentage with lifetime risky driving on the bottom of that graph you can see again in some states more than others there are significant significant problems let us turn out of drink driving laws and every jurisdiction has a a BAC limit of 0.05 for fully licensed drivers novice drivers have a zero level but there are very different ages as we know across the jurisdictions when that condition's removed and I'll come back to that because that's again another opportunity the weight of a heavy vehicle defines uh, if a driver of that vehicle falls under the heavy vehicle zero BAC limit differs between states again we think that's something that can readily be uh, dealt with and uh, warrants early attention. Not all um, jurisdictions have the uh, zero limit for taxis and the bus drivers, and that's again something that warrants early action. And motorcyclists have the same blood alcohol uh, uh, content limit as drivers, but we know they have much higher crash risks, and that will require some sensitivity if it's going to proceed in the near term. But it's it's a discussion that should be have had with the motorcycle community. Uh, a number of jurisdictions said to us they believe they had uh, links with the community the motorcycle community would understand the, the purpose of this uh, idea if we look overseas to BAC limits lower than 0.05 there are 
significant crash reductions have been achieved when BACs have been lowered and uh, more than 11 countries have done it and there are some examples of where that's happened. And the real point in this exercise is that it's not, we're not talking about the people who, there are some impacts, people who get to between 0 and 0.05 or 0 0.02 and 0 0.05. We're talking about the people who haven't separated drinking from driving, start drinking and keep going. And so get to drink driving limits much more elevated than 0.05. And these measures have been shown to reduce uh, trauma rates across all levels of drink driving. That's the hidden strength of the measure. You can see the recommendation of the ETSC. And look, if a 10% reduction in fatal crashes could be achieved here, as it was in Sweden, that the impacts would be substantial. That, that'd be 106 fatal crashes each year in Australia. Now, we've had to make those broad estimations because we don't have scientific modelling. Australia needs to have scientific modelling forthwith to predict what the reductions would be. You cannot turn your back on 106 fatal crashes that could be reduced every year. We need to have that information. We need to have it out in the public domain. And uh, I know from my discussions with the press a couple of weeks ago in radio interviews around Australia, the argument was, oh, zero is pretty tough. And when you point out how many people already have a zero limit, it does help to balance the argument a little. The world will continue and um, it's, not, it's not going to be uh, the end of the world if this was introduced. We found enormous support amongst you as professionals about this. Everyone in the, in the road safety business knows the benefits this will provide. We've got a big job to challenge uh, or gain the acceptance of the uh, community and particularly the political level uh, who may tend to jump to a conclusion rather than talk it through. So the conclusions in this area, long term, the BAC limit of 0.02 or zero would reduce trauma. And we need to get there if we're going to get towards zero. This is not an option if we're genuine about that towards zero goal by 2050. And that's a nice way to say to people, it's not something we can continue to kick down the road. Short term, there's a lot of things we can do with a zero BAC for particular groups, those that are, have higher risk, and I've talked about those. The zero BAC condition, of course, for the, for the novice drivers, um, in Victoria, people are 22 before they can have a BAC, a BAC of 0.05, from zero up to 0.05. That's uh, a very obvious argument for extending good practice in Australia nationally. And again, um, it will be resisted initially by, by many, but the benefits need to be spelt out and, and they're readily measurable and they are uh, available for the evidence is available for people to use in their discussions with their communities. We've talked about the uh, commercial drivers and drivers of heavy vehicles, a zero BAC limit. We see that as really a cleanup. It's a slight aberration. And the suggestion that we look at zero BAC for repeat drink driving offenders in saying you must, for the rest of your existence, your life, separate drinking from driving. These are people who've got a problem with alcohol. And we need to help them separate drinking from driving. And we believe from the discussions we've had with all of you that there would be uh, a reasonable prospect of uh, pursuing this particular goal with our, uh, with our governments. Enforcement practice and, and penalties. Uh, effective deterrence, well, 
many of you know this well, but let, let's recap. The risk of detection, the punishment certainty and consistency, the celerity, the swiftness, and the, the severity of the uh, penalty contribute to deterrence. And um, severity is less important than the other factors, interestingly. But the primary, primary aim of RBT is creating and sustaining deterrence of drink driving. It's that general deterrence, uh, which is reasonably well understood at, at uh, senior policy level and certainly by senior police, but not so well understood down the line within most road safety organisations and indeed with many frontline police. Drivers aware of RBT enforcement will change their behaviours because they don't want to be caught and incur costs. And we still need some specific deterrence because the message needs to get through that those who've been drinking have been found and they've been punished and that, that the spread of that message assists the general deterrence uh, impact. Mass media campaigns we know are very important to support general deterrence. But it's cr critical of the population who uh, drink and drive are deterred from doing that because they think they will be uh, detected and that requires lots of RBT that's highly visible. These are the RBT practices across Australia. You can see the variation in the rate of breath tests per licenses per license per year on issue, that third uh, row. And it is always an issue that comes under great pressure at budget time in any jurisdiction. Why can't we reduce the RBTs? I'm standing out on the roadside with my troops and they're wasting a lot of time and not finding anybody who's drunk with their general deterrence breath testing. We can reduce the numbers, it won't have an impact. That's not, that's not the case. The evidence says just the opposite. You mustn't reduce your levels of testing below about 1.1 tests per year. It's interesting that Tasmania is, uh, is the best state in that regard. Um, South Australia is very low, ACT extremely low, uh, but we talk in a moment or two about that level of 1.1 as good practice now. We'll come to the longer term opportunity later in terms of levels of testing. So that's something that every jurisdiction should be striving to achieve. I know, for example, New South Wales are planning next year, it may even be this year, to move to a much higher level of testing. That's, that's good leadership and we need to see that happen across the country. The benefits will be there. So best practice enforcement. In summary, I won't go through all of these, but you've got to test a lot of passing motorists. People have got to be aware that it's going on. You want some covert or mobile operations with police cars in conjunction with your booze buses to give that broader coverage. Highly visible RBT, do it early in the night when people are going out and making decisions about whether they're going to drink and how they're going to get home if they do. And do it late at night when most drinking, uh, drink driving occurs for both general and specific deterrence, of course. There's some recommendations there about the intensity of coverage in urban areas. And in rural areas, use car-based overt RBT because the, the booze bus deployment is not feasible at the required intensity across all of rural, rural parts of jurisdictions. The covert operations on back roads often can be, of course, conducted with the overt on main roads to build that link between visible enforcement and detection. 
and, and just a, a comment, be careful about maximising the number of tests at the expense of covering broad urban areas and, and achieving minimum testing hours per unit area. Those of you who are involved in this space know these things well, but for those who are not, uh, we need to reinforce it. And we certainly need to reinforce it at policy levels across uh, our non-police agencies and down the line in the, in the police uh, agencies. Just reinforcing again, random breath testing should be preferred over specific deterrence of drink drivers, apprehending drink drivers. You need a bit of the apprehension, but the big benefits are from the general deterrence. So conclusions, effective enforcement is absolutely critical in managing drink drivers across Australia. And I've, I've been involved in many situations where people have taken the foot off the enforcement and it's remarkable how quickly drink driving fatalities surge. The level at 1.1 random breath tests per year per license short term is regarded as good practice in Australia. And we would encourage all jurisdictions to move to that as soon as possible. The, the downsides are clear. And drug testing requirements should not be resourced through reducing drink driving enforcement. That's, that doesn't solve, in attempting to solve one problem, you're creating a problem with another. So we would just make that point clearly. The effective use of penalties. Penalties need to be swift, as we said before, certain, consistently applied. Severity has a far lesser effect, the research has shown us. Licence bans, suspension of licence, loss of licence should apply at 0.05 and not at 0.08, as is the case in many jurisdictions at present. And sentencing policies, which um, basically uh, allow people to uh, get an exemption or a work licence from a penalty, are definitely not best practice policy. It, it, doing things of that nature um, cuts right across the idea of a license ban motivating compliance and deterring offending behaviours. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't have merit logically, and the research shows that it's not helpful. And we should move as a, as a, a matter of some urgency in every jurisdiction we're recommending as soon as possible to, to, to wipe it out. Many jurisdictions have had these provisions. They still exist in many jurisdictions. We need to look at uh, assisting with them. Immediate roadside suspension has been shown to be effective. And again, we need to move to that immediate roadside suspension by police taking the license off people who've broken the legal limit in testing. Because we know that there is a high incidence of reoffending between the offence occurring and the license ban being imposed perhaps by the courts or even by an infringement notice sometime down the track, 30, 40, 60 days later. Strong research evidence for that. And offenders need to be dealt with in a timely manner. Court processes mean you will often have delays in the penalty being enforced. For to reduce the load on the police in preparing briefs and to encourage the police to be active in detecting uh, drink drivers, it would be useful to make sure that you can use administrative provisions to issue offence notices with the BACs under 0.1 or even 0.15. I think that's the situation in Victoria has been for some time. 
taking that load out of the courts, dealing with it uh, quickly, and above all, giving the police more reason to, uh, or not giving the police less reason to be out there uh, detecting people and uh, finding them, or having other penalties imposed. Okay, well that's uh, that's the end of my uh, section. I'll now hand over to uh, to Anne. Um, thank you, Eric. Um, I'm going to be speaking about repeat offenders um, and the measures we can put in place to try and reduce their reoffending, and also speak about programs um, and societal measures that we can put in place to promote safer or responsible use of alcohol and also reduce societal uses. So. Just in terms of recidivism rates across Australia, there's quite a degree of variability uh, ranging from 14 to 45%. Uh, and when we look back at the offence rates in the last five years. Interestingly, um, jurisdictions have different definitions for repeat offenders. Um, so the look back period, so how long you look back in terms of whether someone has had an offence or not varies between three years and 20 years. So that has a considerable impact on the uh, how we manage repeat offenders across Australia and also who gets the additional penalties, but also who gets the additional programs that are for repeat offenders. Uh, things that we know work are vehicle-based sanctions such as empowerment and also interlocks. And we also know that repeat offenders have a high, very high risk of driving while unlicensed. So things like uh, automatic number plate recognition become really important. The thing we do know about repeat offenders is that quite a number of them have alcohol dependency issues and that has an impact in how we manage that group and how we treat that group. By far the strongest and most effective way of dealing with offender groups and preventing them from um, drink driving in the future is the use of alcohol interlocks. We know that interlocks are very effective, particularly while they're installed in vehicles. And we also have found recently that they have considerable benefits for first time offenders and not just repeat and high level offenders. So all Australian jurisdictions have some form of interlock program, but we found considerable variability in how they are operationalized and therefore probably this impacted on their effectiveness. So working to maximise the, the usage, the uptake uh, of interlocks uh, is really important to preventing drink driving. We also know that from jurisdictions that they, uh, there are individuals that, that people come across in interlock programs and in other, in other areas of their work that it is incredibly apparent that those individuals are addicted to alcohol and have trouble managing an interlock. Uh, in those instances, the evidence suggests possibly that a case management approach is, is a good way of going. Most jurisdictions have some form of program for drink drivers or offender programs. Some, in some instances, these are very widespread and other instances they are just for select groups and they vary a lot in terms of their composition. It's difficult to give strong advice about this because there, there is a lack of robust evaluations of these programs. However, some work done in Victoria did develop some best practice guidelines to guide these types of programs 
based on, on the available literature and also based on good practice in terms of managing um, people with alcohol misuse and dependency. What we know is that the programs should try to be delivered as early as possible when someone's detected and that all offenders benefit to some extent from these interventions but the intensity level of what is delivered needs to vary depending on the offender's level of risk. We know that psychological and therapeutic approaches tend to be more effective than educative and particularly programs that are solely educative approaches are not overly effective. We also know that in, in terms of best practice, drink driver programs should link to alcohol and drug treatment services. They need to be tailored for the needs of, of diverse and um, Indigenous groups, and they also should um, support the use of alcohol interlocks that should be part of what's included in the programs. Turning now to community-based measures to address drink driving. So these are more broader public-wide programs or initiatives. Um, we do see a lot, and we have for many years seen a lot of uh, marketing and promotion of, of drink driving and, and drink drive prevention messages um, across the community. What we know from the evidence is that public education campaigns that focus on in increasing an individual's perception that they will get caught and that they will be punished helps to create a deterrence which prevents people from drink driving. That is very strong and that's really what campaigns try to focus on. Also focusing on the separation of drinking completely from driving is another, um, is, is a potential way of, of going that will be uh, helpful in terms of uh, getting the community engaged and thinking about the need to completely separate if we do move to a, a lower BAC. Other programs that are popular that are more programmatic based are things like offering alternative transport solutions, encouraging the use and operating designated driver programs. These come with pretty mixed evidence of their effectiveness and, and probably warrants more research but hasn't been as positive as, as one would expect. What we found is it's been a more positive is longer term multi-component approaches. So things that are more detailed and longer term. We do need to consider though that the level of investment in public education that can be a uh, these can be quite intuitive and they can feel very, very good from a, from, a, from a policy and political level. But we do need to make sure that we have got them right and the level of investment is appropriate um, in terms of the returns on these programs. In terms of drink driving rates, we saw from one of Eric's earlier slides that the rate of alcohol consumption varies in different areas of, of Australia. And, this has an impact on, on drink driving. So how much alcohol is consumed in the local area and the level of consumption does impact on road trauma. So this is an area that road safety professionals were pretty aware of, but had done fairly little work in. So when looking at this evidence, we know, and what was very clear was incre inc increasing the cost of alcohol does reduce societal consumption. So measures like a minimum floor price on alcohol or volumetric tax are things that are seen and regarded to have a very, very strong effect on the level of alcohol consumed societally. 
In addition, greater regulation and restrictions on alcohol sales, the density of outlets, the hours of operation, restricting the promotion of alcohol um, and alcohol usage, particularly amongst the use, is really important. The, um, there's also other treatments that can be used for people that try to detect people's misuse of alcohol early before they become too dependent and support them if they are uh, misusing. So this diagram here just tries to show the types of um, interventions that match the areas of need in the community. So societal measures to prevent alcohol consumption and misuse um, are things that, um, as I mentioned, some of those policies around access and affordability of alcohol. Community-based measures are things like brief interventions. So for those not aware, a brief intervention is a psychological approach that is designed to be quite short and it's designed to try and uh, in a very empathic way uh, to try to uh, discuss with someone their alcohol use in a constructive way and may, maybe highlight to them if their usage patterns are, are risky, what they can do about that. These are, these are increasingly used in community health settings like uh, emergency departments, general practice, and have found to be quite positive in helping people with those early stages of alcohol misuse before they become very dependent. Uh, there's also measures that drink drivers, which we've talked about previously, um, and case management, which is looking like it has some potential for people that are that are very dependent on alcohol and cannot manage their alcohol use with, with licensing issues like interlock programs. For people that are particularly alcohol, uh, who are very alcohol dependent, um, they really need to be referred to treatment and in some jurisdictions are managed or monitored by medical review. But for those people that are very dependent, getting some form of effective treatment is, is really required. Turning out in a safe systems approach, we've also considered safer vehicles and safer roads and what impact this can have on preventing drink driving. We know that vehicle technology in the very long term offers significant hope in terms of reducing drink driving through either smart passive alcohol detection systems or impairment detection systems. And these are really promising. Um, in terms of making sure that they're encouraged, we'd hope that jurisdictions can play a role in that and also ensuring that supportive infrastructure um, can enable the, smart, the use of that smart vehicles technology. So just in terms of, I'll call Eric to, to speak with me about these conclusions and recommendations as well. So in terms of conclusions, um, our main areas for, for um, recommendations are that more drivers, we need to have more drivers with a lower legal BAC limit. And Eric talked at length about that. And I think that is critically important. We also need to look at revised application of license sanctions so that they can maximise the effectiveness and effective, highly visible, randomised enforcement, as Eric spoke about, to really create that deterrent effect. An area of great opportunity is the broader use of alcohol interlock programs, particularly if it's coupled with case management, if it's needed, and that more work with alcohol and and drug and health sectors to manage alcohol dependent drivers. We also need to turn our attention to effective measures societally, at a societal level, which is something we haven't done a lot of in road safety in the past. 
um, and also look at fast tracking vehicle safety systems to prevent alcohol impaired drivers. We also note that there is a difficulty in some of these um, measures in very remote communities who face a lot of challenges. So they, to some extent, need a, a special lens and, and, and I think more guidance and more work and more research in what we can do in those communities. And can I just add, just going back to the revised application of licence sanctions, very briefly, I just want to make the point that includes bans for all offenders who exceed the legal limits, immediate roadside bans for all as well, so that they lose the licence right away, and no exemptions for these work-based or special licence arrangements. Yes, yeah, exactly. All right. I'll just move on now to our policy and regulatory framework. So. What we've tried to outline in our report is what's currently happening in drink driving practices across Australia. So that, and we would like to really acknowledge the input and the work um, done by the states to give us all of that information. Um, it's very detailed information, a long time together, but um, we really um, we have outlined all of the current common uh, sorry the common current drink driving practices. Then looking at the evidence and the research. We looked at those current practices and identified which of those what we will call good practice measures. So what is the most strongly supported by the evidence as good practice measures among those things that are already happening in states. And then we turned to what is not necessarily happening now, but what would need to happen to get us to reach our towards zero goals in the future. Uh, we then uh, identified that some things need to occur to help enable those measures to be put in place and we've identified a range of enabling measures. So if I just turn now to talking about the, the good practice um, measures. So our logic here was, and, and join in Eric, is what our logic was really if some, if a practice was happening that was good practice in one jurisdiction, at least in Australia, then it shouldn't be too difficult um, by and large for other jurisdictions to adopt that practice. So it wasn't, it wasn't too aspirational, it was something that could happen fairly, fairly in the fairly short term. So in looking at those recommendations then, so we would say in terms of legal BAC limits, good practice measures are having a zero BAC for all heavy vehicles that are defined as 4.5 tonne and for all commercial drivers. We would also say that zero BAC for P drivers and motorcycles up to at least the age of 22 years is good practice that is already happening now. And a zero BAC for all repeat offenders is good practice that is happening now. As Eric mentioned, the RBT rates of, of 1.1 tests per year per licence on issue is good practices happening in two jurisdictions at the moment. Um, and that is, is a measure that we recommend being adopted in the short term. Licence bans for all offenders over a legal limit of 0.05 and not 0.08 needs to, needs to be practised in all jurisdictions um, and not no systematic exemptions, reductions or removal of licence bans is also good practice that needs to be put in place. And immediate suspension at the roadside for all offenders, offenders that exceed the legal limit as in New South Wales. In terms of managing repeat offenders, vehicle impairment or mobilisation for repeat drink drive offenders is good practice. Um, interlock programs that are mandatory and not voluntary 
and yeah, very important. Mm. And mm. and that all offenders are required to participate in interlock programs. And this might require measures and assistance from jurisdictions to help achieve that. But that's worth. We feel that that's worth the effort and the investment yeah. because the benefits will be significant. The interlock program, above uh, most other uh, interventions, was was seen to be in a transition phase, where some have started early, some jurisdictions uh, well down the path, but need to do more. This, these are good examples, and uh, we think the the experience in some jurisdictions will be of great help to those others in making the case for extension. That's right. And support and counselling given to interlock program participants in need. Um, in terms of drink drive programs. Um, best practice programs for drink driving offenders with assessment and treatment are needed. Vehicle-based and road-based measures to try and accelerate that and extensive infrastructure programs that include roadside treatment are also a good practice measure. Um, Public education, so messages that focus on general deterrence and separating drinking from driving, and also only looking at prevention programs that are evidence-based. In terms of reducing societal alcohol consumption, measures to reduce alcohol excess, um, sorry, access to alcohol, such as a floor price on alcohol or volumetric tax, are things that would be very beneficial and are encouraged, and the support for community-based brief interventions. Before we move on, Eric, did you have any other comments to make? Oh, no, I think they're self-evident there, Anne, but I think inherent in most of those is a recognition that we've got to do much more with uh, other parts of government. In the remote communities, issues about community transport and public transport, how do they get from their communities to a larger town and so on. Issues about mental health and its, uh, its role in... Uh, uh, the role of depression and drink driving for repeat offenders and WA has some very good programs and people working in that space. Getting involved with the health authorities across Australia in terms of uh, floor pricing on alcohol, in terms of counselling and case management of alcoholics or people with the dependency on alcohol, we think that, that those are areas that the road safety community is not really branched into. It's time that that is revised and it's time that the linkages are established and that we start to look at what we can do on that in that broader remit. Yeah. We then looked at towards zero measures. So these are things that are not currently happening in any jurisdiction, but we think they are the evidence-based best practice measures that will help get us to zero. So a zero or a BAC that's less than 0.02 for all drivers and riders. Uh, a random breath testing enforcement rates of 1.5 per licensed driver per year. Could I just add, Anne, that that is when when you the research is clear here, Australian research. When you look at the cost effectiveness of that level, it's still a VCR that's well over one. So you're not testing. Uh, it, it, the, the testing can be well and truly justified on crash reduction terms. I think that's important yes. for people to yes. know. Yes. Um, so the widespread use of vehicle impairment and immobilisation for offenders, smarter unlicensed driving detection practices, particularly to try and increase deterrence and compliance among recidivists, uh, systematic case management support services, um, best practice programs for driving offenders as well, um, relevant infrastructure that is either built or is 
available to enable use of intelligent technology, as particularly lane departure, to avoid lane departure crashes is, is really important, particularly in rural areas. Public education campaigns um, to encourage the take up of those technologies and the support and encouragement of a national volumetric tax on alcohol. And can I just just make the point there about the um, the case management ideas and the counselling of people who've got alcohol problems. There are some good work has done in this space in North America and in Switzerland. So we're a little behind the eight ball in this country in picking up on those opportunities. Yes, they will cost money, but it will reduce the number of repeat offenders and hopefully deal with this serious problem of alcoholics in a way that we hope will also be addressed by technology and vehicles. Yes, right. We we also um, identified a number of areas of future research during this um, project. So some of those will help um, in terms of um, in terms of uh, achieving those towards zero measures, and others were those that uh, arose during this project but really weren't in the scope. So modelling the benefits of the lower BACs in Australia evaluating the effectiveness of alcohol interlocks for all offenders rather than just high level and repeats, a practical review of how jurisdictions can maximise participation in interlock programs, evaluations of programs for drink drivers, um, and how to identify and effectively um, uh, refer people who are alcohol dependent and what, what level of investment in treatment programs are, is warranted. We also, uh, a range of evaluations of community-based programs and social and the social impacts of traditional penalty systems on disadvantaged and remote communities, which is really important to try and work out yep. uh, how best to manage um, the situation there. We, we, need to do, we need to do better there. We've got strong messages from some jurisdictions that current arrangements or the traditional arrangements are not working effectively. That's right. So there's, there's the complexity there that, that needs to be addressed. Um, research on repeat offenders and to understand a bit more about their behaviours and needs. We also noted that we didn't um, look at uh, intoxicated pedestrian safety, but mm. it is certainly linked to some of these, these issues and, and measures, but that needs further analysis and effort. And we also feel that there's a greater need for more timely and reliable crash injury offence and licensing data for policymakers. Yeah. We did find some jurisdictions far better than others in that regard, and they they were at a significant advantage over those yes. who didn't have that. We we particularly thank New South Wales. Yes. Um, so that concludes what we our our research. We would just like to acknowledge the uh, input from Hannah Parnell and Greer Banya for their work on this, and also our co-author Dr. Alison McIntyre. Yeah, absolutely. We're very grateful, uh, Greer, for your assistance uh, in the latter part of this. That's great. You're thank welcome, you, Eric, man. Um, Greer, Anne and Eric, look, thank you very much for that presentation. That was really interesting and it has generated quite a few questions. So I'll, um, I'll start by going to slide uh, 29. And the question relating to this slide is, do you think there is an appetite for a lower BAC um, politically, given the increasing recognition of the negative impact of alcohol on society in general? 
Well, that, that's a good question. And we, we think we think we know there's an appetite amongst all the people who understand the issues. That's the professionals around the country. Very strong appetite. Uh, and I think in the medical community, there'd be a fairly strong appetite as well. The community tend to be uh, a little resistant to the concept of it being some imposition they can't live with. We formed a view in discussions with colleagues all around the country. There's a strong wish to separate drinking and driving. And we know how effective that's been for novice drivers. Uh, it's been reasonably effective for, effective for um, the public vehicle drivers and so on. So we think there is a very strong case for it. But what we need to have is publicly presented data that says this would be the benefits. We, we didn't have that advantage. There's been some work done in Australia and we've actually seen some of that work, but it's not publicly released. And we don't, we don't say that that necessarily is the answer, but through Austroads or through one of the jurisdictions, we need a piece of work that says this would be the benefit of it because then the debate can be informed by consequence. Everybody thinks of the impact on their own lives and inconvenience, not being able to go out and have a, a drink at a restaurant and drive home. They need to know that there are a big number of lives that are that could be saved if this uh, measure was brought in and that there are techniques for dealing with you know your person who drives you home and so on there are one, the society would adapt to this but there would be enormous enormous resistance from licensed premises we could expect and we don't need to wander out and uh, find ourselves being beaten up and the things shut down before there's some better facts available for to inform the, dis the discussion and the debate. So our advice would be to proceed very carefully on this. And the argument has to be, in our view, don't shut the debate down. Let's have a discussion about yeah. this. We think there's enormous benefit from what we've seen, that the downsides can be managed, but we need more information to help you in this decision-making task. Great, thanks, Eric. So the next question relates to slide 33. And it's about interlocks. So what can what more can be done to increase the use of interlocks? Are there innovative programs you're aware of to extend their use, for example, in regional or rural offenders? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean the answer is yes. Um, it's it's a challenge in very remote communities, I understand that, and I think that needs particular attention. Uh, but that doesn't mean it can't be addressed. And I, I, I think if you take a national view of this, it's in the interest of the whole Australian community, not about time to be talking about this really, it's in, in the interest of the whole Australian community that uh, provisions to prevent people who are affected by alcohol from driving, those who should have an interlock or do have an interlock, should be supported perhaps through some uh, support from the federal government because we need to make sure these processes are effective not just in the capital cities or in the regional areas but in the remote areas so it needs work but there's a national interest here as well i think that we also the benefits are very strong while the interlocks fitted so we do yep. need to try and make sure that we do everything we can that that these programs do do include as many as offenders as possible. Um, where it can be mandated, it should be mandated, but I understand there's difficulties in some jurisdictions about that. But it, it needs to, people be, need to be enabled to use them because they are the, probably the most effective thing we can do for offender groups. Yeah. 
Yep. And I think the starting point has to be making the uh, issues in remote communities are a particular challenge and we should look at that now. But I think if you look at regional areas or even metropolitan areas, in some jurisdictions, you only get an interlock if you're above, if your offence is above 0.1. In other jurisdictions, you get an interlock after every alcohol offence. So we need to push uh, public acceptance of the notion that let's give everybody who's been found guilty of drink driving an interlock because when they're on the interlock, as Anne has just said, they're unlikely to be uh, impaired and they're going to be safer on the road. There's a lot that can be done there to make mandalocks required, mandatory, for everyone who's been guilty of a drink driving offence. Great, thank you both Anne and Eric for that. Um, next question relates to slide 36. So do you think the separation message is really getting through to drivers? And I'll, I'll throw that to you. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So there's a separation. There's been a few campaigns that have looked at the separation of, of drinking from driving. We know that, um, look, we know that young people with a zero BAC can pretty effectively separate by and large. And we also know that other people with a zero condition can separate. We've also found that in, say, for instance, Victoria, where that campaign and the message of separation has been fairly strong in our public education for some time, we have seen that state probably had the highest level of acceptance of a lowered BAC requirement. So I think that it's it's a good way of giving people a strategy, but it also is a good way of, of um, engaging the community and a ground softening, if you will, for some changes in BAC laws. Yeah, and I think th this whole notion of having a very accessible uh, uh, talking points or notes on the benefits of uh, zero BACs, separating drinking from driving, is going to be very important as we go ahead because people so often, when you talk about road safety initiatives, they shut down any consideration of the road safety benefits when in fact that is what the focus should be on. And I think the challenge will be in years to come to bring people back to focus on that, much as they hate doing it, and try and point out the incomparability of some inconvenience in their lifestyle or change to lifestyle to the lives that are lost currently. That, that's a big shift for us but we have to bring it back to the benefits in terms of saved lives and reduce serious injuries. We need that, we need that work done. Great, thank okay. you. Um, so the next question relates to slide 37. And the question is, do you think this is a public health issue and how are agencies working together to reduce alcohol-related road trauma? And do you handle that? Yes, yeah, look, it is a public health issue. Um, yeah, and it was certainly recognised when we talked to all jurisdictions about the societal use of alcohol and um, the ready access to alcohol in our communities. And the, the, the probably disconnect was that we didn't really get involved with the public health debate. There's been a national alcohol strategy released last year in Australia that does touch on the alcohol-related drink driving and, and trauma as a result, but it's probably something that very few of our, our jurisdictions or our road safety practitioners got involved in, but it does impact on this work. So I think that it's a, an area of potential for us. It's an area that we need to expand into. We don't operate in a vacuum and then we probably do need to see the public health um, issues with alcohol and also drug use as part of our work in road safety. 
Yes, there's, there's an issue there. There's an issue there in terms of encouraging our uh, ministers to see the need for that uh, cross-government uh, linkage. We need the health, the help of the health professionals, of course, in the health departments. But that dis that discussion should be encouraged and supported by the uh, the, the political level. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thank you both. Look, we've got one last question, which is, is the COVID-19 situation an opportunity to trial a lower BAC as a way to protect the community as a whole? Some personal sacrifice for the greater good. What do you think? <laughs> Look, um, it's an interesting point. I, I'm not sure that that's the line I, I would suggest we, we'd run in the short term, but I think What's interesting about COVID-19 is we don't know the dreadful loss of life in the Northern Hemisphere. We don't know yet how many people will die, but we know that 1.3 million people every year die across the world in preventable road traffic injuries, crashes. And what we're seeing is enormous, the community accepting enormous dislocation because of the threat that this virus is posing. And I think there is an argument about as the dust settles and we come, become more aware of the parameters around COVID-19 and where it stops, to make these points to our community in a way that's very thoughtful, but says, why are we putting up with this loss of life on our roads, rather than going through a little bit of inconvenience, as we've been talking about, to, to reduce um, to zero by 2050. So I haven't got my head around all the uh, nuances in that argument, but I think there's an opportunity in coming months to make the case that the community does enormous things when it's shown leadership, when there is joint and, and united leadership from the political level and based on clear arguments and a clear a clear risk. And one of our challenges is to make people aware that, that road safety is a public health issue, that the, the people who are dying are dying in preventable deaths, they're preventable deaths and preventable serious crashes. And so we've got a bit of work to do. Great, thank you. Thanks, Eric. And look, thanks everybody. Um, we will uh, wrap up the session uh, now. We've just got a, a minute before uh, our hour is up. But before we close, I just wanted to let you know about the next webinars on our schedule. And if you've got an interest in road safety, you might be particularly interested in the webinar on the 13th of May. That'll be looking at the education and training of drivers of assisted and automated vehicles. So thank you, everybody. Thank you to our presenters, Greer, Anne and Eric. A really interesting presentation today. And thank you to all of our participants. You've provided us with some really thought-provoking questions. If we didn't answer your question today, uh, we will uh, respond in writing and um, that will be sent to everybody who participated today. So just before we close out today's session, a questionnaire is going to pop up on your screen and please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. We do read it all and we've been using your feedback to shape our future sessions. So thank you everybody and um, we'll close off and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.